Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be off tomorrow, so uh, happy Thanksgiving. We're going to be back uh, with a podcast on Friday because people will be driving around on Black Friday, and you need to hear from us, I, I, I guess. Look, uh, you know, I, I'm guessing that a lot of us are – this is going to be a very strange Thanksgiving. There's just no question about it. It's, it, it. it's going to be bizarre. But we have to be – we have we do have some things to be thankful for. You know, 2020 is almost over. The meteor didn't hit us. I'm in mixed feelings about that. You know, the vaccine's on the way. The Dow is at 30,000, which is, I don't know that I would say the 30,000 is a sacred number, but, um, you know, it's better than the alternative. Democracy has survived, at least for the time being. Donald Trump's days are numbered. Uh, but again, we are very, very thankful for all of you who have listened to us, who have supported the bulwark over this uh, the last uh, several years and uh, and going forward. So who better to talk about all of this um, than our latest bulwark editor, Mona Charon. So happy Thanksgiving, Mona. Thank you, Charlie. Happy Thanksgiving to you. This is the um, day, this the previous day when I make the dessert and the stuffing ahead of time. So, you know, my wife is doing the full Thanksgiving thing. I mean, the turkey that had to come out of the freezer on Saturday. She's got all this elaborate stuff. And it, it's it's just us. I you know. know. It's, I know. So she's really making, I would say, a heroic effort to recapture Thanksgiving. This is her favorite holiday. And yet it just feels so strange for so many Americans, I think. Well, I think it's, you know, I've come to believe it's everybody's favorite. Everybody keeps saying it is. Um, It's certainly mine. We're doing our best under the circumstances to um, connect with family members. We have, you know, we're doing a lot of Zooming. Uh, We have one one son out of three is going to be present, the one you know, Ben. Mm -hmm. Um, And and we're doing our best. But look, I I really do worry um, because after each big holiday, there's been a huge spike in infections. So, you know, after July 4th and after Labor Day and so on, when people sort of ignore the warnings and get together, it's not good. So um, I, even though it pained me for two of, two out of three of my sons to say we're not coming, I thought it was the right decision. You know, but but you've you've read the stories about the number of people who are flying. The airports are full. The passenger traffic is at uh, near record highs. So I mean, I'm I'm trying to figure out what what this all says. I, you know, on one level, it's like people are are you not hearing the warnings that that this is in fact dangerous? On the other hand, I do appreciate the human desire. Look, we have been through this terrible year that, you know, we wiped out all of the markers, all of the signposts of the year. You know, let's just get it back. Let's go on with go on with our lives and, and, and do something positive. So I, I, yeah. have, I, I have mixed feelings about it. I, I have sympathy for the people who are not giving it up. I mean, I I would love to have spent time with more family members, but I understand the just sort of the desire. Of, come on, can we get back to life? I completely understand as well. And it's a very, very hard thing. I mean, look, uh, pandemics are not easy. Um, and what having never lived through one before, one of the things that we have learned about is pandemic fatigue. That's a thing. You know, you just, there comes a point where your vigilance just has to flag and you say, you know, I've been doing this for so long. And 
Yeah. Well, yeah, it is. And and there's there's part of me that feels like, you know, I, I have I joke about it, but I, that I, I have become the Japanese soldier up in the caves and the war's over and I'm still I'm still fighting the war because every once in a while I'll go out and and there's people going on with their lives and then people are doing things. And it's <laughs> right. like I'm sitting here <laughs> in, in the house. And look, and I, and, I, and I know that it's not done yet. And I know that the vaccine is on the way. All the more reason to you know, control the, the the spread of it. In any case, though, this is one of those years, and, and I'm, I'm glad we're having this conversation because I do think that one of the things that we as a culture don't do enough of, where we don't do well, uh, is is to be thankful. Is yes. to sit back and say, we spend all of our time dealing with all the things that are horrible around us. And it has, there's been a lot of horrible, but there's also a lot to be thankful for. I mean, we're still standing, we're still doing this. Democracy has survived. I want to talk about the the, the the battering. Donald Trump will be leaving the White House on January 20th. Most of us still have our loved ones with us. So, you know, on, on the balance, we can take a day out to be thankful, right? It, not just a day, Charlie. I mean, it's uh, there have actually been psychological studies that have shown that one of the keys to fighting depression is gratitude um, and counting your blessings. It's a simple, old-fashioned idea, but it really is effective. And there is so much to be thankful for uh, in our time, even though we're living through a, a difficult um, pandemic and a disease, and we've had you know terrible economic setbacks because of it. Um, the fact is that we still, as you say, you know, we still have um, the the wealthiest uh, society that human beings have ever known. The stores are still full of food, even fresh produce. Uh, you, you, we we haven't had um, terrible privation in terms of loss of power, loss of uh, you know uh, the basic human services. The clean water is still open. When you turn on the tap, it still comes out fresh and drinkable. I mean, you know, all these things that we take for granted, but that frankly at any time could be vulnerable, whether to a foreign attack or or a disease or or something else. And and so it's really. It's helpful to me anyway to just say, you know what? I'm really, I'm so glad I can zip over to Harris Teeter and pick up fresh raspberries whenever I want. It is important, I think, for mental health to do that. But it's also, it's the right thing to do. I'm trying to remember the quote C.S. Lewis, I think, wrote about that the lack of gratitude is, is a fundamental sin. You know, yes. with all of the great and good things that have been given us, that we have done, for us to be, to sit around going, well, yeah, you know, that's all well and good, but I wish I had X or right. I'm not going to be happy unless I get something else to a certain, you know, that that is uh, saying no to the the generosity of of the universe or God, depending on, a, on which particular take you want to. There also in the Jewish tradition, there's a saying that so the, the, the wise sayings called the Pirkei Avot with the sayings of the fathers. And one of them is who is happy? He was satisfied with his lot. Mm -hmm. So. And that's a choice in some ways. It is. So. Absolutely. It's a choice. So yep. I, I congratulated you before. Um, you have, for many years, you have been affiliated with the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and you announced this week that uh, you are transitioning and henceforth will be the policy editor of The Bulwark. So welcome aboard. We, we are just delighted to have you. We've enjoyed your podcast and the fact that you're expanding your role to, at The Bulwark is 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 really outstanding. So uh, again, congratulations. Well, thank you so much. I am really fortunate uh, to be among such fantastic colleagues um, who have really been 
critical to my mental health <laughs> and, and my optimism over the last few years. And uh, this is, I feel, where I really belong. Well, you do definitely belong here, but also I think it's 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 a marker that, you know, for those of us that have been at the bulwark from the beginning, um, I, I think I've told the story People need to understand that this was created very much on the fly, mm-hmm. and and I remember Jim, Jim Swift is listening. He produces the podcast. When we first started this, it was like, well, let's do this for three months and see what happens. Okay, and <laughs> maybe we'll make it to the end of 2019. Well, and then, well, what will we do after the election? And I think people have asked, well, you're kind of an anti-Trump site, so don't you just wither away with the end of Trumpism? And I, and I think that the answer to that is clearly no, we're going to have to continue to push back on the crazy. All of the things that we have been arguing about, fighting about, trying the, the, uh, the, you know, trying to explain uh, are still there. And Absolutely. so, so, so well, so, and Charlie, you, yeah. um, you really made this, this podcast, uh, your podcast, uh, the, uh, the flagship and it's gone gangbusters and that's a real credit to you. Well, thank you so much. And, 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 and your, your podcast has really become a go-to thing as well. Um, the, the, the beg to differ, which is a different format. And it just seemed like, you know, really having all these really smart people together in, in one room. Um, you know, we, we talked well, we about- we used to be in one room <laughs> well, that, <laughs> before that's the true. pandemic. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, modeling civil discourse and it's usually just talk. And 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 it and it and it is hard. And but to assemble a group, and I know you've experienced the same thing, of people who you may have disagreed with fundamentally over the years on some basic principles, but you can find a common ground. There's a Venn diagram of decency, and I think that for people who haven't checked it out, uh, the, the Big Differ podcast is a really perfect example of people across the center left, center right, able to have really intelligent conversations. Um, even when you disagree, obviously, those are the most interesting. Thank you so much for that, Charlie. Um, I, you know, what I discovered um, in the last few years is that um, is that people be, as we 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 say that our podcast is center left to center right, and and we in in within those parameters, we don't disagree on fundamental principles, right? We we all uphold the democratic process and the idea of of uh, of debate and rationality being the basis for um, deciding policy preferences um, instead of identity politics or rage or crazy you know crazy conspiracy theories and so you know while we may disagree on on how to implement our our ideas and our principles we we do have some fundamental um, loyalties to to the process that um, distinguish us from some people out there who are really just in it for the, um, you know, for for, for riling up um, the, the anger and fear, rage and fury. Well, let's talk about where we're at here. I've kind of been slow walking th- this conversation because I, I wanted to start off on a positive note because it is it is Thanksgiving, but a very provocative piece in the New York Times today about the fact that yeah yes we survived uh you know democracy survived this this year but you know what um maybe we won't we won't be so lucky next time mm-hmm. and so that's that's i guess the, the the question that the system has worked but it was a near run thing i, I so my feeling is less sort of you know jubilation than it is relief yeah, and and cautious relief right. because um, because of the ongoing damage that's still happening. Um, you know the um, the attempt to discredit 
a presidential election, one that, by the way, ran much more smoothly than anybody expected. In the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of a lot of rule changes that were adopted recently to allow more mail-in voting and so forth, um, actually it ran remarkably smoothly. And and yet, uh, you know, we we now have this specter of Donald Trump attempting to and succeeding in discrediting the entire process and and making millions upon tens of millions of Americans believe that it was stolen. And you know, this is uh, Vladimir Putin's final triumph, really, because what was his goal? in supporting and aiding Donald Trump to the degree that he did. That's still a little murky, but we know that it was his desire to see Trump prevail. Why? Because he he wanted to prove to his people and to the people of the world that our system is deeply corrupt and, and, uh, and nothing to be emulated. And now tens of millions of Americans who ironically think of themselves as upholding the American way are discrediting it in the eyes of the world. And it will, they will believe that this election was illegitimate forever. It, yes. it is, it is the stab in the back. Right. Um, and which, which of course is a reference to the, the end of world war one, the Germans just simply didn't believe they'd really lost the war. And so the, the stab in the bath back myth uh, really shaped the rest of the century in in many ways, and I, mm-hmm. and I think unfortunately, Donald Trump is is all in on all of this. And what's again, what's extraordinary about it is not that Donald Trump is a petulant, uh, thin skinned crybaby. What 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 continues, and maybe I just get over this: the number of Republicans that are willing to um, enable him or be silent about it. I mean that you have folks who. You know, you know, you know my, and I, I think I've mentioned him, Mark Tyson from The Washington Post, who's trying to coax Trump out of the White House and saying, OK, you know, you don't need to concede. You just, you know, <laughs> you, can, you, you can leave. You just try to be a little bit gracious, which is never going to happen. And then continue to say that that that, you know, the, the actual election was stolen and then run in 2024 and be elected. It's like, wait, wait, wait. So you are endorsing his lie about yep. the your about the fraud. And and that lie, of course, would be central to a 2024 campaign. And you're OK with that. Yeah. The implications of that are so grave. They really are. And, uh, you know, Thiessen or uh, Mark Thiessen, uh, who yeah. worked for George W. Bush, um, and, uh, you know, is a respected person in the Republican Party ranks. Um, for, for him to abase himself this way, it, it's it's a symbol. It's it's it, we've seen it, you know, over and over and over again. It's what the Republican Party has become. Even its brightest lights, even people who clearly know better, um, are are on board with this, and they have abandoned their devotion to basic decency and to the truth. The truth doesn't matter. And furthermore, they are creating. The, the potential um, for undoing the entire democratic system, because it really does rely on trust. Right. And in the end, it isn't, and it isn't just, you know, politics. I mean, everything relies on trust. If you come to think, you know, if you, if you look around the world at, at societies where, where there's low trust, they tend to be a lot poorer. They tend to have a lot more violence. Um, you know, think of a place like Sicily, where you, you know, you're raised not even to trust your family members sometimes, or only your family members. And that's, that's not a recipe for uh, a successful society. 
And, um, and you know, they're, they are really playing with fire, these Republicans, um, not, not recognizing how fragile that, that system of trust that we've built up over the years. You know, people can scoff, but it's really important that, for example, this new um, director of national intelligence, Avril Haynes, mm-hmm. when she was being named, you know, she, she, she spoke the words that, that are, they're a little bit of a cliche, but at this moment, they don't feel like a cliche because we so badly need to hear this kind of thing after four years of destruction under Trump. She said, thank you, you know, Mr. President-elect and the vice president-elect, uh, but, you know, uh, and, she, you know, she went on about, you know, thanking them and then, but not in a servile way. And then she said, we work for, we don't work for you. We work for the American people. And Everybody understood what she was saying and why she was saying it that way, um, that we need to get away from this idea of, of uh, the strong man, you know, the, 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 the autocrat, and, and back toward a democratic sensibility. You know, what's interesting about that is- Small d. That, yeah, that that would have been a, kind of a boilerplate, blah, 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 at any mm-hmm. other time in our history, but it has, it's, it's fraught with meaning now. Yes. That people talk about that you that you in fact work for the the, the public. I want to come back to the the, the whole DNI issue in, in just a moment in the appointments. The, the the other danger I think of continuing this lie is what it might mean in the future. And because this the, the, the point you're making about the fragility, I don't think can be overstressed. So this is what the New York Times wrote this morning. For now, the country appears to have avoided a ruinous breakdown of its electoral system. Next time, Americans might not be so lucky. While Trump's mission to subvert the election has so far failed at every turn, it has nevertheless exposed deep cracks in the edifice of American democracy and opened the way for future disruption and perhaps disaster. With the most amateurish of efforts, Mr. Trump managed to freeze the passage of power for most of a month, commanding submissive indulgence from Republicans and stirring fear and frustration among Democrats as he explored a range of wild options for thwarting Mr. Biden. So, one of my first thoughts, uh, I keep coming back to it, is we are so lucky this election was not closer. If yes. it had not been multiple states, if it had come down to Pennsylvania, what were they capable of doing? Anything. That's that's for sure. They were capable of anything. When, when Trump invited those two um, Michigan mm-hmm. uh, uh, legislators to the White House uh, in an attempt, which was not successful, thank God, but in an attempt to strong arm them into... You know, sending dele- slates of delegates uh, uh, named by the legislature instead of by the voters, um, you know, that was a symbol of what he would have done if, God forbid, it had come down to one state and the entire Republican Party apparatus had swung behind Trump and uh, the, and then the Republican legislature, say, in Pennsylvania had attempted something like that. I mean, who knows where we would be? And, you know, that's, it was, it was, not close because because Biden won so many of the swing states, but boy, um, then this this is destroying the uh, guardrails so that next time, if it is close, and who knows, it could even be the Democrats who say, "Okay, fine, you've you've yeah. established the precedent that any tactic is acceptable, and you know we're gonna." We're going to take advantage of it. We kind of wonder whether or not this using the legislators to name the legislators to name the electors will become part of the toolbox. Yeah. This had never even occurred to me in the past that anybody right. would think 
that, hey, let's throw out uh, millions of votes and let the Republican legislature <laughs> reverse the result. Um, I have yeah. to say that uh, this is all new to me. So there was a lawsuit filed yesterday uh, in Wisconsin, my home state, where they're continuing this recount. It won't change the results. But it, it's, it, it, it's breathtaking that this Republican group is asking the Wisconsin Supreme Court to, number one, nullify the presidential election. Number two, block certification so that then the Republican legislature can name the electors. And three, would then order the Democratic governor to certify whoever the legislature chose, which would be Trumpian uh, electors. Biden won Wisconsin by more than 20,000 votes. And the thinking here is that the Wisconsin Supreme Court has a 4-3 conservative majority and they might go along with this. I don't think they will. It's crazy. But it's so unthinkable that any Republican group would embrace declaring the entire election null and void and then turning it over to the legislature. It's kind of breathtaking. Now, I don't think it, the Wisconsin Supreme Court is going to do this, but but you, in the back of your mind, you go, okay, well, what if they did? Yeah, right. What exactly. I mean, you would never have thought that any Republican group would, would make such a petition, right? That would have been unthinkable. And it would have been unthinkable for a sitting Republican senator from South Carolina to phone the Secretary of State of Georgia and say, you know, how about those ballots that where the signatures don't matter? Can you just dump a bunch of those and, and, uh, you know, that is where we are. This, the, the Republican party, I'm sorry, it has become a conspiracy against democracy. That's where we are. And you know, what's really frustrating is that for years I pushed back against that argument. I said, no, 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 there's no voter suppression. No, this is all about fighting fraud. This is legitimate. This is about <laughs> voter integrity. I know. And all, all of you lefties who are talking about voter suppression or how anti-democratic this is, you are exaggerating. What, what, what do we say now? No, when, in, that, when, in, when in fact, the intention here, driven by the president of the United States, is let's nullify millions of votes. Let's just throw them away. Yep. Uh, that's right. So you saw Tim Alberta's piece in Politico I magazine? I did. Mm -hmm. Okay, for people who, you, this is a must read. I have it in my newsletter. But this is this is inside the, the inside story of, of Michigan's fake voter fraud scandal. And it's sort of a lot of really good news and bad news. So here, here's just the, the, the first paragraph. In the end, it wasn't a senator or a judge or a general who stood up to the leader of the free world. There was no dramatic made-for-Hollywood collision of cosmic egos. Rather, the death knell of Trump's presidency was sounded by a baby-faced lawyer looking over his glasses on a grainy Zoom feed on a gloomy Monday afternoon, reading from a statement that reflected a courage and moral clarity that has gone AWOL from his party, pleading with tens of thousands of people watching online to understand that some lines can never be uncrossed. And this is the story of a member of Michigan's Board of State Canvassers. His name is Van, uh, was it Langeveld? Um, that sounds right. Who essentially said, look, you know, John Adams said we are a government of laws, not men. The board needs to adhere to the principle here today. The board must do its part. So he basically said, look, I'm a Republican, but I'm not going along with this. I'm not going to block the certification of the votes. And so on the one level, this is great that this man of integrity and ethics and, you know, heroism was able to stand up and do the right thing. The bad news is that it took someone to be heroic to stop this, yeah. right? The system yeah. shouldn't rely on heroes. It should rely yeah. on just people who, of course, you're going to do the right thing. 
Right. I mean, it should have been a no-brainer that everybody, you know, has basic integrity and refuses to do things like, you know, decertify clearly <laughs> elections right. where there's no doubt. Um, you know, that that would have been unthinkable, but that's not the world we live in. And so, you know, I guess we have to do something like um, make people like this Michigan guy and Raffensperger in, in Georgia. We have to make them heroes. We have to like give them awards. I don't know, like uphold them as symbols I'm of willing. what- yeah. yeah, of what we want to see in American life. And, uh, and you know, having just said, you know, very harsh things about the Republican Party, I'll say these are two Republicans who um, have shown that they still have integrity. And by the way, I wrote a column about Raffensperger, and I heard from somebody in his office saying that this was appreciated, and he closed with integrity matters. And that was gratifying. Um, yes. But... Um, but look, I, you know, this is this is it points to this really deep, deep rot, and we have we have our work cut out for us in the future to to work against this. Uh, one of the things that people fail to realize is that politics is not just about entertainment. It's not just about you know. I've, we've heard all these people saying, "Oh, the Biden appointees are boring," you know, as if politics should be about entertaining you. But um, but but in addition to that, um, the uh, the original idea of the founders was that individuals would take part and would be responsible and would cherish liberty in their own breasts and therefore would be you know would be very very uh, suspicious of any attempt to um, to 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 thwart the will of the people. Well. Um, you know the, the 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 strong man who comes along, or the or the cult, can uh, can undermine all of that. And and um, if you don't mind, I'll just I, I mm -hmm. before we started, I I pulled up one of my favorite speeches, which is from uh, which is from Judge Learned Hand, who was like the most eminent jurist who was never on the Supreme Court. He was on the Second Circuit for many years, but he was a great man. He had to live um, up to that name and, too, didn't he? Yes, he did. I mean, you, um, know, you name your kid Learned Hand, you're putting a little pressure on them. Right. So, so he said in the course of this great speech, which is called The Spirit of Liberty, in 1944, in celebration of I Am an American Day, I uh, quote, I often wonder whether we do not rest our hopes too much upon constitutions, upon laws, and upon courts. These are false hopes. Believe me, these are false hopes. Liberty lies in the hearts of men and women. When it dies there, no constitution, no law, no court can even do much to help it. Mm, and good. that is the thing that we are up against, is that we have to help people to recognize that when they are being asked in the name of party loyalty to uh, break all the rules and to, uh, well, you know, to, 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 to um, trash traditions and, and, uh, and laws that they are, they are killing the spirit of Liberty and, uh, and inviting in the only alternative, which is a some variant of autocracy. And it's so ironic because these people just, you know, spent an entire election season warning about the depredations that would follow a victory by the left, socialism, communism, and so on. Now, nobody has been more vocal as an opponent of socialism and communism than I have been in my no. life. I wrote an entire book called Useful Idiots, which was about people who were making excuses for communist regimes during the Cold War. Um, 
so I have no. It was a uh, great book. That no, oh, I, thank I, you very I much. read that. That was that was your <laughs> magnum opus. And, well, and it's embarrassing. You. No, it's, okay. I was actually thinking the same thing yesterday. That mm-hmm. I'm against socialism, but I kind of wonder when people say, "Well, we have to stop the Democrats from socialism." What are you talking about, Janet Yellen? Yeah, right. (laughs) Specifically, could you, I mean, so let's start from the premise that that I'm against social. What exactly is the socialism that you're against? So I'm old enough to remember when Republicans said that Medicare was socialism. Do you still Mm -hmm. think that that is socialism? Um, Right. So what happens is you you have these phrases, but so let's just talk about now where where we're at. The the president has rolled out, the president-elect has rolled out, I I have to say, I don't know most of these people, but they seem really impressive. The contrast between the clown car, that uh, clown car administration that that Donald Trump put together and this group is pretty uh, significant. You're already starting to see some snarky shots from Republicans in the Senate, you know, Marco Rubio, you know, saying that they are going to preside over decline. Tom Cotton calls them panda huggers because. Oh, wait, can I can I just interrupt for one second on this Marco Rubio thing? Oh, geez. Yes. So Rubio Rubio guy. Oh, my. I used to be. I I was. Yeah. Wow. Okay, But so Rubio (laughs) tweets out this thing about, you know, oh, they all have Ivy League degrees, he says. All these appointees. Okay, two points about that. First of all, you want to go down the list of people that Trump appointed? Yeah. William Barr, Columbia, Mike Pompeo, Harvard, Steve Mnuchin, Yale, Elaine Chow, Harvard, Alex Azar, Dartmouth and Yale, Alex Acosta, Harvard, Mark Esper, Harvard, Dr. Ben Carson, Yale. Um, <laughs> so there's that. But in addition, this is the kind of thing that that Republicans used to scream about Democrats doing, right? This is identity politics. This is not saying I don't approve of this nominee because of his or her views. It's saying, I don't like you because of the school you went to. It's, it's, it's playing upon class prejudice, right? Reverse snobbery. Well, the, that actual qualifications become anti-qualifications. But exactly. then that's, this is Marco Rubio thinking he has to play populist. Yeah. Right? I mean, he has to, and they're all playing populist. Exactly. And that's, again, that's, and these are all smart. I wrote my newsletter on dumbing down the Senate. These, I, I'm, I'm leaving aside the troglodytes, like like the Marshall Blackburns and the, and the Tommy Tubervilles, who are just right. You know, the sort of the the really smart guys, the guys who have pretensions to be big thinkers. You know, Josh Hawley sounds like he wants to, you know, be Don Bongino's co-host. You know, <laughs> what a group of corporatists and war enthusiasts and big tech sellouts. You know, so, I mean, I, the guy, I, he he by the way has a degree from Yale. I know. Look, you know, there is an exchange of voters going on. It's gotten Mm -hmm. a lot of attention that uh, Republicans are now becoming the party of the white working class and that the Democrats are becoming more the party of um, college educated voters and and, uh, voters of color. But, you know, I do sort of ask myself, um, and you know maybe it's because the republicans are so are so new at this trying to appeal to this audience yeah. that didn't used to be theirs but i mean honestly do they have to try to sound so stupid and did, De- did democrats d- talk down to their audience when they had the majority of working class voters i don't know this is the, this, this is the point and by the way if you subscribe to my newsletter i i devote the newsletter to talking about the dumbing down but you make a very interesting point there's something wrong about the tone it's sort of remember when when Mitt Romney 
was learning to speak conservative and he said, yes. I am, I am severely conservative. Yes, you yes. can sort of tell you're speaking it slightly as a foreign language. Well, Trump, when, when he would talk about pro-life issues early on, it, yes. was, it was clearly, he was like, I don't necessarily know what the answer is, but I, this is what I think you want me to say. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. yeah, it, it is these guys, you know, Tom Cotton, I mean, a year ago is writing a book about sacred duty. And now he's talking about panda huggers, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it, 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 so they're they're pandering to what they think is the base, which shows that you know they're always saying, well, you know, you elitists have contempt for the base. Actually, you're the ones who have the contempt for the base. Well, you absolutely, know? and and you know, another way that that Trump has always shown contempt for the base is by lying to them. I mean, how does that show respect for the well, people? Right. You're- yeah. And 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 everything gets dumber. So we were talking about the department, the the, the director of national intelligence before, mm. um, and I I have to say that the the qualifications of all the people that uh, that Biden are, and then they they seem to be, I mean they have they're qualified. They also seem to be pragmatists and centrists. There are no screaming socialists in in the group. But watching these senators push back against them, and I don't know whether they'll actually vote against the members of the cabinet. We read be rather extraordinary. For uh, Republicans who have gone along with Trump's, you know, shambolic uh, administration to actually say, no, I'm not going to give you the secretary of state you want. I'm not going to give you the the other officials you want. But remember, these guys all voted for. Remember who the the director of national intelligence is right now? It's this guy, this guy, Ratcliffe. Ratcliffe, yes. uh, Three term Texas. um, John Ratcliffe, three term uh, Texas congressman who is the least qualified director of national intelligence in history. Mm-hmm. I mean, the guy's a complete hack. It's so bad that when his name was first floated, they uh, they found that he'd basically embellish his resume. And so they withdrew the appointment because he was too it was too bizarre. And then he shows up again and all of these Republicans vote for him. Marco Rubio, Hawley, Cruz, they all vote for this guy. So don't give me this bullshit about being concerned about qualifications and experience. Well, and, and Charlie, that makes that also prompts the thought that, again, speaking of gratitude, I mean, th- that was a pattern through the Trump years, namely that initially there might be a little pushback, but then eventually everybody would fall into line with whatever horrors Trump was perpetrating. And imagine if he had won re-election. I mean, the guardrails would have been just completely flattened. We would not be a recognizable constitutional republic if we had had four more years of Trump. No, that's true. So I guess the question is, and this sort of loops back to the attempt, Trump's uh, discrediting of the election is, of course, um, designed to you know make it look like he's not a loser, but also challenges the legitimacy of a Joe Biden presidency. And you still have a majority of senators, as far as I can tell this morning, who are still not acknowledging that Joe Biden won this election, which is amazing. And I, I'm, 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 I was going to say I'm starting to wonder. Actually, I'm way past the, the, the wondering. They're going to make any cooperation with Joe Biden into a litmus test, aren't Toxic. they? Mm-hmm. They're going to go all out. They're going to they will offer him no cooperation. I really like Joe Biden's optimism that he was going to be able to work on a bipartisan basis. But a lot of people said you're incredibly naive. Um, At this point, I think that McConnell is going to do to Joe Biden exactly what he did to Barack Obama. And they're basically going to say everybody votes against everything. Yeah. Um, Some of my former colleagues on the right um, asked me 
you know, whether I was going to be a full-throated supporter of Kelly Leffler and, uh, and uh, uh, Purdue, uh, David, uh, Purdue. David Purdue in, in, in Georgia so that we could make sure, you know, they said, well, we understand you didn't like Trump, but of course the Republicans have to maintain control of the Senate. And I said, look, I have mixed feelings about it because I, look, I, I don't want the Democrats to, um, you know, be able to do some of the things that they talked about, the Green New Deal's bad idea and so forth. Not that all green initiatives are bad, but the Green New Deal is. But in any event, um, uh, but at the same time, I am, I have the same worry that because Trump is seeding the, you know, assaulting the earth, right? And saying, you know, that, that the Democrats have stolen this election and Joe Biden is illegitimate the incentive for any Republican to cooperate in any fashion with the Democrats is nil. And so uh, giving the Republicans the Senate, which they may get, but it is sort of, it's sort of um, preordained almost that um, they, they will be, they will simply be obstructionist and not really interested in finding common ground and compromise, which is what we desperately need. So many of the issues that confront the country are just waiting for just a basic compromise that that used to be par for the course in American politics, and uh, you know you split the difference. Uh, you know you want You'd hope so. You know yeah. more immigration. We want less. We're going to arrive at a, at a compromise. You know, but but if we can't have that, then uh, then it's just a, a recipe for more bitterness and anger and and uh, and further division. Well, and that I think is going to be the, one of the next norms to go is the presumption that a president should have the right to choose his own cabinet absent some, you know, really severe ethical, moral, personal problems. And I I, I think that, that that on the right, there's going to be this, uh, this insistence that anyone that votes to confirm uh, Biden's appointee somehow is sold out. So I think there's going to be tremendous pressure against them to do that. I, I think they eventually will get confirmed because not everybody is a nut. You know, you still have some of the swing votes uh, enough enough to get them through. But, you know, you, you were asked this question about Georgia and I was I've been asked the same thing. Like it's one thing to be against uh, Donald Trump, but surely you uh, are going to support the Republicans in Georgia. Well, the the moment that Kelly Leffler got into bed with QAnon, she yeah. was she was off the table for me. Number one, no, we don't need any pandering like that. Um, and when she and Purdue called for Raffensperger to resign because yep. he did his job, that just told me the kind of politics they they practice. That was disqualifying. That yep. is disqualifying, and that shows the kind of toxic uh, politics. So on this issue of of, of cooperation, um, I'm I'm reading uh, Barack Obama's book. And I'm at, at the section, which is, by the way, very interesting. I'm, really, I'm about to because it, I agreed to review it for somebody. Oh, oh interesting. Because, I mean, yeah. he's he's very introspective about the mistakes he made, which I which I, I find very interesting, um, mm. including like he talks about what a screw up it was when he talked about people who, you know, get bitter and cling to their guns and their Bibles. Good. What good. a mistake that was. And, but then also he says what I should have said was and and frankly, the other Democrats ought to read this because he's given a great deal of thought to why white working class voters have been alienated. But I'm in the section now where it's his uh, you know, first six months in office and he's realizing and he's shocked by it that the Republicans have decided to give him nothing. That when the stimulus package was passed, not one Republican 
in the House voted for. That Mitch McConnell had decided, I'm going to make you, you know, I want you to fail and I'm going to make you a one term president. And he makes an observation. I mean, again, it's, he's, he's clearly was taken aback by that. He was not expecting that kind of complete opposition. Now, he was able to get stuff done because when he was elected, unlike Biden, they had huge majorities. Yeah. They had like a 70 vote. They had a majority. filibuster proof majority yeah. in the Senate. Right. So that's very different. So Republicans paid no price. They could vote no on everything without actually ever affecting anything. So it was kind of a free vote. But he notes that historically, the reality in American politics is that compromise and cooperation do not get the uh, party out of power back in power. That if you're the party out of power and you want to claw your way back, mm -hmm. um, the best thing to do is to be oppositional. And that's just a reality. And, and a lot of this book almost reads like a memo to Joe Biden, like, Joe, they're not going to work with you. <laughs> there's there's zero chance that you're going to get any cooperation from them. And Mitch so, McConnell is the is, is not a good faith actor. Mitch McConnell does not give a shit about good public policy. And if you think he does, you're going to you know get ready for disappointment. Yeah. Um, but I do remember a time when when compromise happened. Um, yes. You don't have to go back that far. I mean, look at the George W. Bush administration where they had compromises. On, I didn't even always I didn't always like them, but they had compromises on issues like education. Um, they had a big education bill that had bipartisan support. There were many others, uh, many other examples. And um, and uh Look, it, it it has lately, I think, become the case that uh, minorities figure, you know what, I'm going to hold out until I can come back into power because, you know, the Congress didn't used to change hands so frequently. Mm -hmm. And um, so there was more of an incentive to compromise and there were more people in the middle. But now it does change hands. And so there's a there's a tendency on the part of the, the minority party to say, well, I'm not going to cooperate with the majority. I'm going to hold out and then we can get everything when we take power. Uh, which is kind of a zero sum attitude, very, very not so. good. Yeah. So one of the interesting political science questions is, you know, you know, Barack Obama had huge majorities in the House to be able to get things through. Biden has this absolute razor thin. This is one of the big shocks of the campaign is how bad the it House, is. The House uh, Democrats have done so that they only have. I don't know. What is their majority going to be? Four votes, five mm -hmm. votes? I don't I don't know, uh, which means that. The squad, the progressives, may turn out to be a bigger problem for Joe Biden than the Republicans. You just sort of assume the Republicans aren't going to help you, but uh, you know, even four or five Democrats can can make it impossible for Biden to get legislation through. And it's interesting that they're already starting to throw their weight around, you know, and say that what is this guy Bruce Reed um, has been rumored for. Uh, for the Office of Management and Budget, and they then AOC doesn't want him because he's a budget deficit hawk. He mm -hmm. actually doesn't want to run up the debt, and so they want to veto him. And so, yeah. so the the Democrats are going to have some. They will have some problems um, on their own. On the other hand, they don't. They can't have any tolerance for too much dissent. So you know, you know it, when you have a big majority, you can let people go. But yeah. but right now, you you have to keep people lockstep. Well, and, and, you know, some people in the media who um, help to elevate the profile of AOC and others um, may want to reconsider and uh, start paying attention to people like Abigail Spanberger and others who um, are in closer districts and are closer to the what we have discovered to be the heart of the Democratic Party. 
because clearly the perception that the Democrats were um, very far to the left, which isn't true, but it was it was aided by slogans like defund the police, which Jim Clyburn criticized mm-hmm. and other things. Um, damaged them very badly in this in this last election and and it's going to have long-term consequences because this is the year when redistricting happens and uh, all those state legislative races mattered and um and so it's going to cement republican gains and that's um that's something that the, the democrats i hope will begin to to think about that uh that making aoc you know putting her um, I think uh, somebody had an expression like they they take her out of the front window. They said, you, know? You, you know, I have ranted and railed about this for the last two years that that here you had this this amazing freshman class that came in 2018. And if, if you looked at the covers of various magazines, you would think that the only freshman was AOC. Yeah. When in fact, you mentioned Abigail Spanberger, uh, you had Connor Lamb. You had a lot of these centrist Democrats, many of whom um, have now been blown out in in the election. But if, if you ran AOC in the swing districts, um, you would have been absolutely wiped out. But yeah, I, I actually, I was going through some old copies of some magazines, and there was a, one of these cover stories. I think it was Time magazine. It was uh, about the Democrats. Whose party is it? And in the lower right corner, they had the entire squad. You know, you had you had Biden, and you had you know Elizabeth Warren, and you had you know Kamala Harris, and you know, et cetera. But then you had all four of the members of the squad. Like, why them? Yeah. As a, as opposed to the centrist Democrats who had demonstrated in 2018 that they could win these elections, and and again, the fact that you had Republicans winning all over the country and Donald Trump losing would suggest that there are a lot of people who um, looked at Donald Trump and said, okay, I'm a Republican, but he is distasteful. Did you see that quote where he's saying, I can't understand how this happened. Yes. Everybody else won, but but not me. Yes, yeah. Donald, because they hate you. Yes. You, you are I mean, fired. And, you know, Charlie, if I didn't know better, I would say it's almost as if those never Trump Republicans are actually a thing and that they no. might have been decisive in this election. Yes, they might have been decisive in this election. Who might, who would have, you know, who would have guessed considering how many times we were told how completely irrelevant they are. Exactly. But I saw one th- one uh, tweet this morning, and of course everything on Twitter must be correct, that there was something based on some of the, you know, exit polls, I, and I have all the asterisks on that as well. Right. There was something like 8 million conservatives who voted for Joe Biden. I think he's going to win this election by 7 million votes. So just saying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you're welcome. Yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it is sort of that dark vindication, right? I mean, I, 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 do, yes. I, do, I do feel vindicated, but it's dark because look what's happening. I, you know, I got to tell you, Mona, you, you know these people as well. There's, there's the hardcore Trumpists who are just a lost cause. Mm-hmm. Then, then, of course, there's the anti-anti-Trumpers. The ones who are like too cool for you know their shoes and everything. Oh yeah, like, yeah. So I'm going to write in Edmund Burke because yeah, yes, Donald Trump yes. Is, is bad, but I'm not going to actually do anything about him. Or you know, people who write, well, maybe Trump. Well, you know, mm-hmm. I don't like Trump, but at least you know he's going to save us from the you know hordes of socialist Visigoths that <laughs> uh, that are going to come in with with Joe Biden. But I, what are they thinking now? Is they're watching Joe Biden? You know, sulking in the White House, undermining democracy. Uh, Trump sulking. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Trump. This is my problem. Trump sulking in the White House, throwing out 
the most insane, dishonest, toxic conspiracy theories. Are they really sitting there thinking, yeah, I'm I four, four more years of this would have been better or may, oh. maybe we can get him to run again in 2024. Are they really thinking that? How you know, do you look and, at and, him and think, I want more of that. Yeah. And what drives me nuts is the people who before the election were, you know, saying, well, of course, you know, we still have to support Trump and you know, better than the alternative and, you know, all that. And then afterwards, when they see this behavior, they're, they're saying, well, this is really unacceptable. This is just terrible. You know, from it's just it's infuriating um, because they were enablers. Um, they it was no secret that Trump planned to behave this way and and right. has behaved this way for the last four years. And he couldn't have telegraphed it more clearly that he wasn't going to accept a fair election. He said so repeatedly. Ugh. You, you know, and remember when he suggested, just floated the idea, I think he was trolling, but he floated the idea of perhaps delaying the election. And all Republicans had no problem coming out and saying, no, we're not going to delay the election. We're not going to have that. Yeah. Yeah. Knowing what Trump was going to do, because it was, as you point out, you know, not just telegraphed, he said it explicitly yes. that, that he was going to challenge the election. Republicans should have at least put their heads together and say, OK, this is what we're going to do. If it's obvious he's lost next day, we all as one stand up and say it's over. They could have mm -hmm. just shut this thing down. Yep. And now they may be living with this for the next four years. Too bad. So or eight. So you're going to take off the next four days. You're going to chill. You're going to like turn yes. off the Twitter. Yeah, I, I I am. I well, I don't know if I'll exactly turn it off, but I I have um I've been working flat out, you know, throughout the whole. Oh, I know. Period of uh working out, yeah, the, throughout the whole pandemic, and I haven't had a vacation in ages, so I'm kind of taking yeah. taking okay. a few days. So Mona, that's exactly what I was thinking because I remember <laughs> there, there was a point before the election where I I, I said I'm just, I am burned out. I I just I have got to take a vacation. And then I realized, wait, there's like 30 days to go. Until the <laughs> I can't, I can't take, it's like, you know, right. like, like two days before D-Day going, you know, I'd like a little R&R. &R. No, right. this is it. This is, this is the moment. So I didn't do it. I kind of sucked it up, but I am trying to think the last time I actually took a vacation and I couldn't do it. So I did think four days. Can I do this? A four day vacation. We're going to we're going to pre-tape for the people who listen to the podcast. We're pre-taping something later today for Friday. So you will have your your podcast. But but yeah, and I think there are a lot of people like that who did have not taken vacations for a very, very long time, figured there'd be a break after the election and sort of like. You know, that one last push to cross the line and then they keep yeah. going. <laughs> exactly. And let me just, as a public service announcement, just note that um, we usually record uh, uh, Beg to Differ on Thursdays. So we are going to skip this one week and we will be back next week. So look for us then. <laughs> Excellent. Well, M Mona Charon, thank you so much for joining me and happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, Charlie. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening to the Bulwark podcast today. We hope that you have a wonderful and blessed pared down Thanksgiving. And we will be back on Friday and do this all over again.